This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The position of the woman. That just sound like a, a message that could get me in hot water. And so I put in this subtitle just to sort of throw you off where you have no idea where I could possibly be going with this message. A study in the beauty of the feminine role in the church. So I know you talk about roles, you talk about position, and it can get a little sticky. But that isn't because of the church, even though I I guess I should maybe correct that. It is partly because of the church and how they've abused some of these ideas that we're about to present. But it's a social thing and it's a political thing in many ways that has defied the word of God and actually overwritten the entire idea of God's revelatory device, which is the church. You see, marriage, when done right, shows the kingdom of heaven. Family, when done right, shows the kingdom of heaven. The church of Jesus Christ, when done right, actually shows something. It's not for oppression's sake, it's for revelation of the divine so that we would see the gospel, we would understand the person of Jesus Christ. The title is The Position of the Woman. If I were to say to you, what is your position, what would you say? You see, I am going to sort of skip to the very end here and, and sort of steal my punchline by saying, you just answered the question right there. In other words, the position is already clear. It is in Christ, and that's what defines behavior from this point forward. So if you're a woman, it's defined not just socially. You could be in a very oppressive culture in regards to femininity. However, your femininity is defined, first and foremost, in Christ Jesus. And that's very, very important because this has been an abused topic throughout the ages. And I pray, and I hope that the way I address it today would truly breathe life into it and not death. This was inspired through a question that was asked in the, uh, in the, what is it, the advanced that we're doing? Sorry about that. In the advanced training this week, and it, it sort of got me thinking. I haven't addressed this for quite some time in the body, and it could be very helpful. The vow of the woman. So we're going back to the Old Testament, and we'll see some precedent that is set, and it's a very unique idea. Even the idea of gender in the Bible is rather odd, and it's just there. And God doesn't make excuses for it. He's not bashful about it. He just sort of says things. You ever felt that way with the Bible? Like, Paul, think through these things before you just write them down. And however, many of us are carrying baggage into those scriptures. And as a result, we have a lens on when we're looking at them and we don't see it clearly. The vow of the woman. So uh, Numbers 30. If a woman also vow a vow unto the Lord and bind herself by a bond being in her father's house in her youth and her father hear her vow and her bond wherewith she has bound her soul and her father shall hold his peace or be silent at her, then all her vows shall stand and every bond wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand. 
But if her father disallow her in the day that he hears, not any of her vows or any of her bonds wherewith she hath bound her soul shall stand. And the Lord shall forgive her because her father disallowed her. And if she had at all a husband when she vowed or uttered aught out of her lips wherewith she bound her soul, and her husband heard it and held his peace or was silent at her in the day that he heard it, then her vows shall stand and her bonds wherewith she bound her soul shall stand. There seems to be something in the mix here of a woman, whether she's in her father's house or she's married, that when she makes a commitment or a vow or covenant of soul, that her father or her husband has the ability, if he hears what she is saying, to actually disallow it, to annul it, so it doesn't have a binding effect on her soul. So go back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden when Satan is wooing Eve to actually eat of the tree. Eve commits herself, and she actually makes a covenant with death. Whether she realized she was doing or not, she vowed a vow. And she committed herself, the day in which you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And she entered into a covenant and an agreement with death. Now, what's very interesting is there was a priest, a husband, in this situation named Adam. And Adam, hearing of her vow, understanding what she did, was silent. And as a result the covenant or the vow that she made was binding. And of course, it became binding upon Adam too, who also ate of the fruit. You see, what we have is a foreshadow of something in the New Testament. We have a speaking husband or a speaking priest. We had a silent husband in the Garden of Eden. And now comes the Word of God. And the Word of God did not return void, but purchased for himself a bride and disannulled, or annulled and, and disavowed, in a sense, disconnected Eve, his bride, from the covenant that she had with death. The silent husband, Adam, we could also call him the passive priest. Some of you may have heard this before, but when I try and recreate the garden scene, it's sort of hard because we have very little details in it. In fact, I don't know how many of you are just shocked that Adam just sort of eats of the fruit too. There is no conversation that is given. It's just that, yeah, and she gave it to her husband and he ate too. It's like, excuse me, what are you doing, Adam? I mean, we're already shocked enough with the whole Eve debacle, but then Adam, without even saying a thing, doesn't even argue, just sort of eats it. I mean, come on, buddy. What should he have done? He is the priest of Eden. He has been given authority. He's been entrusted actually with the word of God, which is exactly what a priest was entrusted with. And imagine that we sort of play out the scene, and Eve comes to Adam with, you know, the juice of the fruit dripping down her chin, and holds it out to Adam and says, Adam, God wasn't telling us the full truth. This stuff is good. It opened my eyes. I can see things. I have knowledge I didn't have before. And she holds it out to Adam. And Adam sees. He sees the vow that she has vowed. He sees what she has done, the deed she has done, the day in which she does that, she dies. He remembers the word of God. He was entrusted with that very word from God. So imagine instead of taking the fruit, he backs up and says, Eve, Eve, how could you? Adam, Adam, eat it, try it. It'll open your eyes. You see, it'll make you as God is. God hasn't told us the full truth. And imagine Adam backing away and saying, Eve, Eve. And who does he turn to? Instead of to the fruit, he turns to God. He says, God, my wife has eaten of the forbidden. 
Of course, God's not shocked by that. He says, well, she must die. You know my word, Adam. I know. I know, but God, is there any other way? Is there any other thing that can be done? Well, it demands death. Well, God, isn't there a solution? You die for her. Imagine if the first Adam hadn't been passive. And the first Adam had been speaking the word, holding it up, confessing it in his life, how the history of earth changes. However, what I want you to see in this is the picture of the groom, the picture of the man. When we oftentimes get the idea of a man in our culture, and then women hear that they need to submit to this man, you can understand where the problems come. In other words, we have unhealthy masculinity that women are supposed to submit to, and you can understand where feminism even comes from. I mean, it doesn't take much of an imagination. However, when you have true masculinity, then it actually puts the idea and the framework in place for you to understand true femininity. So the talking woman, here, Adam, try this, plus the silent husband equals the great fall. The speaking husband, also known as the word of God. Jesus, the rescuing priest. He did what Adam didn't do. He's known as the last Adam. Adam was the first priest and he failed. Jesus comes as the second and delivers. He's the rescuer. He's known as the savior. So Ephesians 5 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. I know, just a beloved text of scripture in modern America. Wives, submit yourselves unto your, unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. So he's talking about husbands and wives. I mean, you read through in Ephesians 5, and what are you going to conclude? He's talking about marriage. He's talking about husbands and wives, and that's what he's talking about. And then Paul, at that very moment, when you think you've concluded and have it all figured out, he says, this is a great mystery. Well, it sure is. He says, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Wait, 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 whoa, 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 whoa. I thought you were talking about husbands and wives. Well, yeah, but to show you a mystery. What I'm showing you is something much bigger. You see, when God is talking about husbands and wives, when he's talking about men and women amongst us, what he does is he says, this is a great mystery. And we're like, yeah, you're talking about men and women. You're talking about what women can't do, what men should do. I mean, yeah, we hear it, Paul. I mean, could you shut up? He says, you don't realize what I'm re referring to. I'm talking about Christ and his church. This is the revelatory device to show the heavenlies who God is, what he has done, what he's accomplished, and how it all works. And unless we recognize that this is a bigger picture, we miss the whole thing. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. The silent woman plus the speaking husband equals the great redemption. Boy, that could get me in hot water, just that statement. The silent woman, could you imagine? I could have named this message the silent woman. <laughs> Plus the speaking husband. Well, what's the husband doing when he's speaking? He's saying, take me instead. The woman understands that she needs a head, that she is designed to serve something. What is that something? The church 
of Jesus Christ without Jesus Christ as the head does not work. This is the mystery. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's talking about Christ and the church. This is what we are learning about. The bride. Now, here's where it gets a little awkward. You know, we're talking about men and women, and then suddenly we realize it's Christ and the church. Well, who's the church? All that believe. In other words, the woman in this discussion, the position of the, the woman is our position. And I'm a man. In other words, the position of the woman isn't something that I dictate to the women in here and say, yeah, get in your position, woman. You could look back at me and say, get into your position, woman. <laughs> the woman is that which comes forth out of the side of the man. This is a great mystery, but the mystery of which I speak is Christ and his church. Who was born, the new creation, where was it formed? Out of the side of Jesus Christ. You look at the cross afresh and you're going to realize that the newness of life flowed out of that cross on that day and there was a new creation that was brought forth. And it's a new bride. It's a bride that's been redeemed from the covenant with death. And so, we're men and women in here, yes, but we're speaking of a great mystery. And that mystery is Christ and his church. So the position of the woman is the position that all of us need to understand. So the bride, or the woman, the great treasure worthy of the life of Jehovah. What's an amazing thought is when you diminish the value of femininity, which is a gross error, by the way. Of course, there's other books out there in modern Christianity that are belittling manhood and saying that women are the, you know, epoch are the, uh, the, the highest points of God's creation and might as well just trample upon men. Uh, okay, now we're just going off the rails no matter which way we go. However, it is important for us to realize that the woman in this story, in this great mystery, is actually worthy of God's life. He gave up his life. He shed his blood. He suffered and he died to redeem her. That's showing a tremendous value. So the devaluation of women or men, however you want to look at it, is completely misplaced when you understand the gospel. Who can find a virtuous woman? So speaking of this woman, in Proverbs 31, we have a picture of what we can call the bride of Christ. It is a pattern of femininity, yes, but it's a picture of the woman. It is a picture of the one who is dependent upon the man. And she's quite a resourceful, amazing woman. But you can look at it as the bride of Christ, for her price is far above rubies. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. Oh, that Christ would have such a bride. Let's catch a vision together for the beauty of femininity. You see, I'm a huge fan of femininity. I am an advocate for it. I've stood up for femininity for years of my life. And so if anyone should be able to stand on this as a man and proclaim it, hey, I should have some credibility on this point. Helped Leslie even write books on femininity. In fact, it's, you know, I don't know if you've heard the story of me writing Authentic Beauty with her. You know, it's not that I wrote every word, but I worked through the process, the language of it. Took us seven months. And when we were, we were done, I was, we were reading it through. I got so excited. This is so important for us women to hear. <laughs> that was a moment when I realized I've spent too much time uh, in this book. First, let's get the awkward stuff out on the table, and I'd like to address it, because no matter how you cut it, 
when you're dealing with femininity and the Bible, you're dealing with some awkward stuff. And it's stuff that we are super sensitized or highly sensitized to in our culture. So let's just make ourselves uncomfortable. Titus 2. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. So this is things that become sound doctrine. That the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becomes holiness, not false accusers, not given too much wine, teachers of good things. That they may teach the young women. What are they going to teach the young women to do? Okay, brace yourselves. I just want to forewarn you. Uh, This is uncomfortable. They're going to teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, and I'll I'll sort of slow down on this one just so you can soak in it, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Did you notice that I slowed down on that one just to sort of uh, let it linger uh, a little? How are you guys doing? You guys hanging in there? No one's walked out yet, so praise God for that. Now it's going to be awkward if you do. It's like, oh, no. If you need to use the restroom, it's okay, okay? (laughs) For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. So... These things, now that is part of the list of what he's, what he's saying. These things you should be teaching. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. So Titus, I'm giving you a doozy of a job here. I want you to teach this. And don't let anyone despise you when you do it. And preach it with all authority. Did you see what was in his list that he's supposed to preach? He's supposed to speak with all authority? Whoa. I will therefore... I will, therefore, that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Sorry about that. Let your women keep silence in the churches. Are you guys hanging in there? For it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Boy, what did Eric get himself into today? Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as is fit in the Lord. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection, but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands." That just keeps going, didn't it? It's like, oh, this is uncomfortable. Silent that the groom may speak. Here's what I want you to begin to recognize. Silence in these contexts is very important for you to interpret. Your idea of silence here means never speaking. When in actuality, there's a form of silence which causes your tongue to still so that another tongue can be heard. In other words, if you speak at the same time something else is speaking... Say your children, you're in a conversation with another, you know, adult, and your child comes up to you and is like, mama, mama, or dada, dada, dada. And what do you say? Shh, could you be silent, please? Does that mean you have prohibited your child from ever speaking? Children have the full luxury of being able to speak in the confines of the home, but there are certain situations they need to be silent in. It is a show of disrespect. It is a show of dishonor 
to actually start yammering at those exact times. So contextually, we are speaking about the church and how the church reveals something. So I want you to look at Jesus. You know that Jesus kept silent before the Father? You know that one way of saying it is, and I prohibit Jesus to speak anything of his own accord. This is the Father talking. Jesus, I need you to be quiet, son. Jesus didn't speak. And you could say, yes, he did. No, no. He didn't speak anything of his own. He only spoke what the Father was speaking. You see, he received his words from something higher, so he had to be silent in himself before the Father. It's a critical lesson that is woven into that. So silent that the groom may speak. Believe thou not that I am in the Father, says Jesus, and the Father in me. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. He is exhibiting a oneness between him and the Father. And in this oneness, there is one that speaks. Now, does that mean he didn't use his tongue? He did use his tongue. But he used his tongue in submission to the Father's tongue. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the work. Becoming the bride or the governess. You see, there's this home, and when you call it a home, and you, we were using the term in the advanced class this week of barefooted in the kitchen. Can you think of anything more offensive uh, to most people in the modern age than a term like that? And it is an unfortunate term because it's inappropriate to enunciate the dignity that Paul is referring to when he calls someone a keeper of the home. You see, if you understand the biblical framework for that statement, it's a whole different ball of wax when you look at it. But if you look at it from American culture and that lens, you oftentimes trip over it and have no regard for what Paul is saying. So we're going to call it the governess. In other words, you have an estate, and there's a governess over the estate, and she's responsible for certain things. First of all, it's an estate, and that makes it sound that much more dignified already. But she's a keeper of an estate. She's a keeper of an environment. Did you know that as the body of Christ, you are the bride, number one, so you are the woman in this discussion? And then Paul says, do you not know that your body is that estate? Who's the keeper? Who's the keeper of the home? Uh, that, that's you. Whoa, a little barefooting in the kitchen in your spiritual walk, are you? In other words, that's what we do. We keep a home, and it's the most dignified thing that ever happened on earth. It's nobility of nobility. To actually keep this home correctly is of the highest order in the kingdom of heaven. So this mustn't be diminished in our mind. Keepers at home. So here's a little phrase that I'm lifting out out of the Titus 2 passage that I read earlier. That they may teach the young women to be keepers at home. That the word of God be not blasphemed. The cultivator of order, beauty, truth in the house of God. This is what a keeper of home biblically is. It is someone who cultivates order, beauty, and truth in the house of God. And in the Old Testament, there's a very specific order of people, group of people, actually, they were men as well, that were assigned this task of being keepers of the home. So it's just an irony of ironies that we have demoted this and diminished this down so much, considering that the Levitical line was considered the holy people of the holy people. Out of all 12 tribes, there was one tribe known as Levi. And out of the Levites came the priests. 
The high priest was a Levite. They were the ones that kept the home, kept the order and the beauty and the truth intact. And this was the highest job. So Judah had the kings. It was a different tribe, but Levi was the priesthood. They didn't have any land. It seemed like they were gypped. All the other 11 tribes uh, received lands. However, Levi did not receive a share in that inheritance because he received a better portion. He received the job of ministering in the house. Maybe I should just stop there. Ministering in the house. The highest honor. And everyone on the other tribes could look in and say, oh, if I could just be a Levite. No, 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 you're not a Levite. That's the way we as men could feel. It's like, what, what about me? Can't I be a keeper of the home? No, no, you're a man. You see, that, that's for the young women. We train them to be keepers. What? Hey, I want to be a keeper of the home. See? That's the way it should be. We should be all jealous of what the women get. What? How come they get that? That's how God designed it. God designed the women to be a revelatory device of something very, very specific in the body of Christ. First Chronicles 23, For by the last words of David, the Levites were numbered from 20 years old and above, because their office was to wait on the sons of Aaron for the service of the house of the Lord in the courts and in the chambers and in the purifying of all holy things and the work of the service of the house of God both for the showbread and for the fine flour for meat offering and for the unleavened cakes and for that which is baked in the pan and for that which is fried and for all manner of measure and size and to stand every morning to thank and praise the Lord and likewise at evening and to offer all burnt sacrifices unto the Lord in the Sabbaths and the new moons and on the set feasts by number according to the order commanded unto them continually before the Lord and that they should keep the charge of the tabernacle of the congregation and the charge of the holy place and the charge of the sons of Aaron, their brethren, in the service of the house of the Lord. There it is. I mean, they're actually, if I were to look at the list here, they're uh, for the fine flour, for meat offering, the showbread, for the unleavened cakes, and for that which is baked in the pan. I mean, doesn't that sound a little domestic? And yet here it is. It's like this noble job description in the Old Testament. I mean, it's just, maybe this is just God's sense of humor, because I don't see many of you laughing at it. (laughs) Keepers of the house of God, know you not that you are the temple of God? No, don't, don't you realize that you're the one in charge of that's what's baked in the pan in your life? Hey, who's, who's dealing with the baked thing in the pan inside of your life today? Whoa, whoa we need some showbread going here. Uh, who's on that? And you're like, I'm sure someone else is. I'm not about to do that. You know, I'm a, I'm a man. No, 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 you're a keeper of the home. You see, and when we are trained to be a keeper of the home in our individual life, we'll be a great keeper of the home when it comes to our family life. We'll be a great keeper of the home when it comes to the church of Jesus Christ. We'll be a great keeper of the home when it comes to ruling nations. You see, this is where it starts. If you don't know how to take care of your own body, this own, your first home, you're going to stink in your second home. You see, God wants to increase jurisdictional responsibility and authority, but you've been given a meaning, a talent of gold. What are you doing with it? Are you taking care of it? Or are you planting it in a handkerchief and holding on to it, saying, oh, God's you know, going to exact it from me. I'm just going to make sure I at least have this to give back to him. God says, invest it. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? 
And what agreement hath the temple of God or the house of God with idols? For you are the house of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The extraordinary beauty of the governess. The picture that is being demonstrated here, femininity just represents something in the kingdom of heaven. It's beauty. And God is unabashed to even say it. See, there's a difference between manhood and femininity and femininity demonstrates a certain dimension of the glory of God that only comes through that feminine revelation. And it's extraordinary. The Hebrew bondservants. So in the Old Testament, you have a picture of something. And it is one, and I'll, I'll read where it comes from, but it's, we'll call it one of circumcised ears. It's one whose ear has been lent. And when you lend your ear, that means you're listening instead of speaking. And listening instead of speaking is the discipline of every single one of us as Christians. Our tongue is given over to God. And technically, for the rest of our life, we will never speak again until God takes our tongue and begins to speak his words through it. So the Hebrew bondservant, one of circumcised ears. If thou buy a Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. And if the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him unto the judges, he shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. There's a symbol of a servant who's been set free, and you've been set free. You've been set free actually by the blood of Jesus Christ, which we're going to go into in just a second. However, you love your master. And so he says, be free. You're like, but I don't want to just live my own life. I, I, the only life I have is in you. And so you come because of love. You return to your master and he pierces your ear through with an awl to the doorpost. Now you have a symbol in your very body which declares, I have an ear for my master. Whatever my master says, I will hear and I will do. And that's what a Hebrew bondservant is. The word in the Greek is actually doulos. You know the word doula? Uh, which is a sort of a popular phrase now for women that are having babies and they get a doula. That actually means a Hebrew slave girl. Uh, that's, what it, that's what it means. Uh, you know, it's like our Greek slave girl. It doesn't have to be Hebrew. But it's actually a slave girl. Isn't that an amazing statement? It's a feminine form of this word, and it means a slave. Uh-huh. And what's she doing? She's serving. She's helping. She's doing what she can to bring forth life and to attend and assist in that. We don't have a negative concept of that. However, the very idea in Scripture is being one with pierced ear that is stilled in the tongue but open in the ear to be ready to do that which someone or your head is actually asking of you. So a bondservant, a slave, a bondman, one given up to another's will. Deeper spiritual meaning is one bonded to Christ out of love and affection. One enslaved to the awesome power of love, one given wholly to its mastery over heart, mind, soul, and strength. One set free from the chains and punishment of sin by the blood of Christ who is now returned, ravished with love, to pay his rescuer homage and worship. One wholly given to the person of Christ as Lord, Master, King, Ruler, Bridegroom, and Friend. A bondservant is one of circumcised ears, pierced with the awl of the Spirit, eager and able to hear his Master's voice, and ready and attentive to his every command. In the New Testament, a bondservant's life is one owned and operated by the Spirit of Almighty God. The circumcised ear. So one of the things I could ask of you is, is your ear pierced? 
Have you returned unto your God who has set you free by his shed blood and said, I don't want to leave your side. I want to still my tongue and be silent before you that you may speak. I want the word of God speaking in my life and my answer to it, even before it speaks to me, is yes, sir. Yes, Lord. It's the pre-decided yes, Lord, that you give to God even before he asks you to do something. And this is the picture that God is building all throughout scripture. The silent tongue, the listening ear, or the circumcised ear. Hearken, O daughter, and consider, and incline thy ear. Hey, can I have that ear? This is an amazing picture. Psalm 45 is like a parallel with the Song of Solomon. It is a picture of the bride of Christ literally yielding its ear and coming away with the one that it loves. Forget also thine own people in thy father's house, so shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. Incline your ear. Yield your ear. Let him pierce it. Let him have your ear. Still your tongue. Give your ear so that you could truly be his bride. Incline your ear and come unto me. Here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Incline your ear, O body of Christ. Yield your ear to your master. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ear is uncircumcised. That means they can't hear. And they cannot hearken. They cannot hear. Behold, the word of the Lord is unto them a reproach. They have no delight in it. Oh, no. That's not a healthy bride. If the healthy bride is yammering over here and has never yielded their ear, they have an uncircumcised ear and they can't hear their groom. And as a result, they are, the, the word of God is unto them a reproach and they have no delight in it. And one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Uh-oh. Oh, no. An ear is gone. If an ear is gone, you can't hear. You see, this is precisely where we are. You see, we have been under the, the priesthood of Adam. And as a result, under the control of darkness. And in a sense, our right ear is cut off. And look at Jesus. They cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said, suffer you thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. He's like, Jesus, I got a problem with my hearing. And so what does Jesus do? He touches that right ear. And he says, no, we'll, we'll get you working so that you can hear. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his doulos. Who's, what's the revelation of God uh, given for? It's to show to his bondservants, to those that have an ear pierced. That's actually the book of Revelation is for those with a pierced ear, those that have inclined their ear. That's actually what the book of Revelation is written towards. The things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. John had an ear to hear, and as a result, he heard the revelation. And he's able to pass it on to anyone else who has an ear to hear. And the moment you begin to catch on to that phrase is the moment you begin to see it all throughout the book of Revelation. He that has an ear, let him hear. Now, most of us are like, I have an ear. Yeah, but it's an uncircumcised ear. It's never actually inclined itself unto God and been pierced. So yeah, you have a physical ear, but you don't have a spiritual ear that can hear. You're still talking. You need to be silenced so that you can hear. 
He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. Seems to be a, you know, a popular phrase that Jesus likes to use. The blessing of being a keeper. Then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. Now, where are you if you're a keeper of the house? You're like there in the house. And so, I mean, if you're on the outside, you might see some of the effects. You might hear like, wow, coming out from the house. Like, what's going on in there? Well, it's those that keep the house that get to share in all the good stuff here. You see, then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. So I added a little parenthetical statement just to sort of help work this in a little. Then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that those who were its keepers, the priests, could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. You see, when you are keeping the house of God, when you are preparing it as it ought to be, who moves in? The Spirit of God moves in. And literally, what do we do? We fall. You, you don't say a lot when the glory of God comes. You just sort of go, ha, ha, ha. You see, you go silent. God is speaking. If God's voice is booming, I don't know which ones of us in here actually think that we have something wiser to say. It's just like if God is talking, remember when he boomed to Job and Job is sort of like melting? It's like, whoa, I shouldn't have spoken. That's exactly the point. When you know the word of God, when you hear the booming voice of Jehovah, what do you do? You get silent. It's like, you know what? There's someone in the room who knows a lot more than me. And I'm going to stop this whole talking thing and I'm going to incline my ear. God, your word is correct. I submit to it. So what we have is a pattern here. I know when we get into the male-female dimensions in this room, it gets a little sticky. However, we have the grace of God and the Spirit of God to apply these truths to us. We have to realize that this is a mystery, and it's the mystery of Christ and his church that God is revealing in and through these questions. The girl Mary, the chosen vehicle of God to reveal the Messiah to Adam's race. And so what I'd like to do is, as we work through this, to realize that the attack on femininity is unabated. Even after the cross of Christ, I'd tell you what, some of the greatest grievances that we as men have perpetrated have been in the church since the shed blood of Jesus Christ towards women. Uh, this ought not to be. In other words, the oppression of femininity in the church of Jesus Christ, if there was a scale, like you could read it, it was like, dee -dee 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 -dee, and there was a red portion, it was like, dee -dee 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 -dee. we've been in the red portion for almost 2,000 years. We as men have not appropriated the text of Scripture properly in accordance with the spirit of the Scripture and in accordance with the Spirit of God. And as a result, we have not been Christ unto women. We have been something altogether different, which we could call flesh. And so as a result, when we get close to some of these topics, I understand why there's a sensitivity. However, to avoid them only leads to more harm. To be corrected by the Spirit of God, to recognize the significance of these things, is of the utmost importance. Can God use women to reveal his glory? Can God use women to speak? Can God use women to teach? Key questions for our day. Or should women just sort of find their spot and be quiet? 
Hey, 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 did I hear a woman talk? No, 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 we prohibit women from talking. How do we function as the body of Christ? How do we do it God's way? So let's think about his chosen vehicle through which to declare the good news in the New Testament. Who does he choose? He didn't first choose a man. You see, Satan, who did Satan choose? He chose a woman through which to bring about a fall. And guess what? Women have been paying that penalty for a long time because Eve is constantly brought up. But how many people bring up Mary? Who did God choose? So the serpent chose a woman. Well, I'm going to choose a girl too. God chooses a girl, and it's out of the womb, out of the life of a girl that comes the good news. Think about that, and don't miss it. This is a redemption that is taking place in the New Testament. It's not a continuation of the old. It's a new beginning. It's a new creation. And so as a result, you need, as the body of Christ, to be alerted to this because God is speaking a language to us. And it does have to do with sexuality. It does have to do with women. But it's not necessarily to oppress them and to cage them as much as it is to redeem and set them free so that they can function as they ought to function. So God chooses a girl named Mary. Mary of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ, which is the Hebrew concept of the Messiah or the anointed one, the Christos, the one that is anticipated and prophesied throughout the whole Old Testament. What does God even say? The first prophetic utterance of the Christophany in the, in the Old Testament is of the seed of a woman he will come. Yes, this all started through a woman and it's going to be corrected through a woman. That's not to be understated. God is going out of his way to correct something that happened in femininity and through femininity so that he could turn the tables on this. You know what the name Mary means? Some of you have heard me say this, but it's, it's, it's worth repeating just because it's so flabbergasting. Mary to many of us is just a sweet name. Oh, how precious the, word, the name Mary. I want to name my daughter Mary. And I would not discourage you from doing it because it's a picture of redemption. However, her name in the Greek is Maria, which is the same as a Hebrew word, Miriam, which is the sister of Moses. And so this is a Hebrew name, actually. It's not just a Greek name. It has a Greek translation. But Maria means their rebellion. It's like symbolic of the rebellion of all the women before it. Yep, she's a Mary. Uh, that wasn't a compliment any more than Jacob was a compliment. Heel grabbing usurper, deceiver. And yet here, some of you have you know, a son and a daughter named Jacob and Mary. And yet it's actually a symbol of the redemption of Jesus Christ. He takes Jacob's, he takes Mary's, and turns them into Israel's and those that reveal the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, it's good stuff. But So Miriam, very simply put, it's rebellion or rebellious. So think about the New Testament. What name of women do you hear more often than any other? Like they just crowded around Jesus. They were rebellious. They were that rebellion, the symbol throughout the ages. And they were coming unto Christ. Who's the one that broke open the spike nard? It was a, a lady named Mary. I mean, Mary's everywhere. Not just the birth of Christ, but Mary's. Matthew 28. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, there's two more for you, came to see the tomb. 
You guys know what's happening right here? This is the first day of the week after Jesus has died and been buried. This is resurrection morning. This is not a small occasion. So where did the Christ come from? Whose womb? It was a woman's womb. The declaration of the Son of God on planet Earth was first revealed into a woman and through her womb. Then, the resurrected Christ, one of the greatest triumphs, if not the greatest triumph of all history of all the eternal realms. Who first witnessed it? Uh, We got some Marys. Mary and Mary. Rebellious and rebellious. We got rebellion all over the place here. Jesus is going out of his way to make a statement. So it says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. And he said, Come, see the place where the Lord lay. The first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus are Mary's. And go quickly and tell his disciples the first command after the resurrection of Jesus Christ to go and share the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ was given to women. Now, I don't know how we miss these things in our submit woman talk, but we need to realize that Jesus is going out of his way to make messengers of women. Think about it. Eve was a messenger of a false gospel, a false hope of becoming like God, but in and through treachery and deceit and lies. And who does God choose but an Eve? A rebellious, it's that rebellion. And he says, I'll redeem femininity. I'll redeem women and make them my vessels to carry my fruit. The fruit of the gospel, the fruit of what hung on that tree is Jesus Christ. And now they become the first ones to carry that fruit. Who are they told to go to? Uh, The apostles. The apostles learned about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from Mary's. Uh... Wow. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. No, no. Hey, hey, ladies, you're not allowed to talk. I, I don't know what that angel just told you, but you are not allowed to speak. You follow me? I'm putting a little twist on this just to add a little... Uh, seasoning to the message. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them. Because some of you were saying, well, that was an angel. I don't know that we can trust an angel that comes with any other message than what Paul spoke. So, I mean, we, we need to know for sure. Oh, there's Jesus. Now Jesus shows up. Now it turns into red letter. <laughs> behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. You know, you guys have heard of the Great Commission, haven't you? Uh-huh, you know, it's just about to come. But you know what came before the Great Commission to the apostles? The Great Commission to Mary and Mary. Listen to this. Go and tell my brethren. Isn't that an amazing statement? 
to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, same word that he gave to Mary, the same word that the angels gave to Mary and Mary. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe. So go and tell. Go and tell. To observe all the things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. The lineage of majesty. Christ chose to come forth from the unlikeliest place. Jesus does not mind being heralded and being revealed in and through odd people. He uses us. That should be enough proof. But he even uses women. I know, that's a shocker for some of us that have spent so much time diminishing femininity. It's like, no, he couldn't use that. Oh, yes, he does. He always has. He always will. And it's not just any kind of woman, even the, the worst of women. God seems to go out of his way to say, uh-huh, yeah, I know. Don't you know what their background is? Don't you know who's, who's touching you right now? Don't you realize who this is and what she has done? Oh, I, I know. And he leverages that. He takes that which the enemy attempted to destroy, and he redeems it for his purpose. So just a quick overview of four different women in the lineage of Jesus Christ. In other words, this is how Christ came to the earth. Through Tamar, the feigned prostitute, Rahab, the Gentile prostitute, Ruth, the Moabitess, or the non-Jew, Mary, the rebellious. I was like, you've got to be kidding, God. Didn't you think this through? At least get a girl that doesn't have a name that means rebellion. That doesn't make any sense. It, 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 there's plenty of other girls around here. Her name doesn't match with that which would bring forth life. I mean, come on, her name means rebellion. I know it. I know it. You see, he's changing what happened in the garden. He's doing something new. He's redeeming the woman. Understanding proper order. So one of the key things when we deal with the church of Jesus Christ is understanding that God showcases in his word how the body of Christ is supposed to function. And some of the things, when they're not dealing with men and women, we could say, well, who cares? For instance, that if there is a tongue that is given, there needs to be an interpreter. And some of you are like, yeah, yeah we just sort of skipped that scripture anyways. But did you know that the context for much of our debate on women in the church is actually the same context? As how you handle tongues and prophecy in the church, it's talking even in that context about order, propriety, how it is done. And so when we begin to recognize that God has a way in which to do things, it gives place for us. We're not talking about how you raise your kids. Be silent, woman, you cannot talk. And so your child's going berserk there, and the woman's like, I just can't talk, I'm a Christian. And it is irrational, it doesn't work that way. We're talking about very specific contexts for how we have order to things so that Jesus Christ is seen clearly and the Spirit of God is not hindered. So look at Psalm 50. Whoso offer, offers praise glorifies me. And to him that orders his conversation. A conversation isn't just like you and me sitting down over coffee and talking. This is the life message. So he who orders the message that comes forth out of his life, aright, will I show the salvation of God. There's something about keeping the home in order that brings in the cloud of glory. So when we correct things and put the showbread where it's supposed to be, make sure that the Ark of Covenant is in its right place, make sure that we have the candles lit, 
In other words, we're keeping the home properly. What comes in? The cloud of glory. So whoso orders his conversation aright, will I show the salvation of God? You want to know the salvation of God? Open the door. Let him in. Do it right. Order this according to his word. As for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. By the way, the context in Isaiah 3 is not a happy one. Judgment is settled upon the land of Israel, and things are going south quickly. And all the strength has been removed from Israel. If you remember my message about the 11 strengths of Israel, yeah, that's the same context. Right before this, we've lost all the manly strength. And so what happens? When men are removed from their proper position, you see what happens. As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. This is actually not a compliment. This isn't a situation going, yay, way to go, guys. Yeah, we're at least giving the children sort of an opportunity to express themselves. You see, women ruling over the nation actually wasn't God's intent. And this is actually a form of judgment in a nation. Oh, my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. And so what we have is something is out of order. A house is not being kept properly, and Israel is under judgment. And when you're under judgment, the scales tip, and the order of things is out of whack. And as a result, worse things begin to happen. But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church. Again, this is a, system, this is a situation of order. So we're dealing with tongues being spoken in the church. And it says, if there be no interpreter, then let him keep silence in the church. Ironically, the same idea of silence right here. You see, you're not offended by that one. Of course, many of you have skipped over this one. But let him keep silence in the church. And you're like, hey, is someone telling me to be silent? There's no way I'm going to be silent. In this circumstance, it would be disorderly and disrespectful and dishonorable to keep speaking. In other words, it's propriety of order that is the context. And let him speak to himself and to God. It doesn't say you can't talk. Just don't talk in the church right here. I mean, hey, there's a proper way of communicating. You can talk to yourself and to God. Have you ever had that situation? Boy, do I feel embarrassed right now. Yeah, that's, that's sort of maybe what it looks like. Let your women keep silence in the churches. By the way, look at, look at the context. 1428, 1434. Okay, we're talking about order and propriety. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Ah, can't you just feel a little hot under the collar as even I read that? It's like whoa, how's Eric going to get himself out of this one? It's not my job to get myself out of something. It's just the word of God. Of course, you could be thinking, but you didn't have to read it. <laughs> you have a point. Same context. Uh, look at this one. Okay, this was the one on tongues. This is 14, verse 28. This is 14, 34 and 35. 14, verse 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. Okay, guys, who's he talking to? He's talking to the church at Corinth. And the church at Corinth is disorderly. That's all been established in the first, uh, 11, uh, first 13, 14 chapters. We got a mess on our hands here. This church is dysfunctional. It is out of order. It is out of uh, bounds on almost everything it's doing. And we need to define leadership. We need to get this thing in order. So he's bringing them to order. That's what he's doing. That's the whole book. And so when we have statements, we need to remember what it's a part of. 
The nature of proper silence. So when we use the word silence, most of us think that that means we are never allowed to speak. But when you have a tongue and there isn't an interpreter, you need to remain silent, which means don't speak in that situation. That is not the situation for speaking. That is the situation for you to hold your tongue and incline your ear. So I'm going to give an illustration here, and this is in the Ludi home. There is a nature of things. Kipling disciplining Reese. Kipling is almost seven years old. Reese is three. Okay, and so Kipling's been around the block. He knows things about the Ludi home. He knows rules, and he's broken them himself, so he knows when he sees Reese doing it. And so it's very logical, even for Kipling, to think, you know what? I just saw Reese do something wrong. I'm going to come over, and I'm going to speak to him about it. And so let me just keep reading. In order has Kipling disciplining Reese. And so you could just imagine what would happen in your house if your seven-year-old disciplined your three-year-old. And it's like, okay, over the knee, uh, Reese. And could you imagine? Reese, first of all, wouldn't even do it. It's like, excuse me? There is no way. You're not daddy. You're not mommy. That would be maybe even a quote, okay? Because there's a, there's a rightful order, and Reese knows it. And he knows that this is out of order. Is it wrong for Kipling to speak to Reese? Like, just in a general sense. So Reese comes upstairs in the morning, and Kipling goes, Hi, how are you doing today? And we go, Shh, you are not allowed to speak to Reese. No, he's not allowed to perpetrate or to speak in that fashion. And in this situation, have you ever had it where your child's sort of like, Yeah, and they really need uh, probably at least five disciplines for that. You're like, this is none of your business. Could you be quiet? That does not mean that I'm telling Kipling that he can never speak. It's just in this situation, his opinion actually has no weight. <laughs> there is a nature of things. Kipling disciplining Reese. An order has been violated that even a toddler can identify and feel. The flow of authority is deeply significant in our wiring. This is what Paul is appealing to throughout 1 Corinthians. He's saying, doesn't the very nature of things show you this? Don't you realize that this is out of order? I know you have freedom in Christ, but not to be expressed this way in a fashion that is disrespectful and dishonoring. Remember 1 Corinthians? The big point in it is, is 1 Corinthians 13. Love. You do all things with love. This isn't love, guys. This is not love. I know you are feigning to have a care about Reese, but actually you just want to see him punished. This is not healthy. This is not correct. There's a proper order for dealing with the Ludi home. The flow of authority is deeply significant in our wiring. However, there is a distinction between Kipling speaking to Reese and Kipling taking a position in Reese's life that is authoritatively domineering. When Kipling takes a position in and amongst the Ludi kids that is authoritatively domineering, saying, okay, kids, here's what we're going to do today. That's when it gets out of bounds. Kipling coming in and asking Hudson how he slept last night is perfectly fine. However, when he takes a position to be correcting, to take a position of leadership amongst the kids, something is by its very nature off. So, I don't know if you're starting to catch context and how these things work when Paul is talking, but it's very important that we do. Laleo, this is the word that is translated as to speak. And so when a woman is not supposed to do this, she is not supposed to leleo. Leleo means simply to speak. But the use of this word is 17-fold throughout the New Testament, which means there's 17 different ways that this simple Greek word can be used. Almost every bit of it has to do with the context 
and the way and the tone in which it's being utilized. It can mean anything from to talk to say or to prattle, to be loquacious as a child. Loquacious as a child. Have you ever had one of those children that just talks, 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 talks? Yeah, this word will work for that too. Uh, so that, this could be your code word in the car as you're driving along. Uh, yeah, we got a little Leo going on here. Uh, to speak in answer to answer, to speak, discourse, discuss in a set manner, harangue or plead. It also means to direct, command, or to chatter, to babble of birds, to twitter, chirp, strictly to make an inarticulate sound opposed to articulate speech. Now listen to this. And this is where 1 Corinthians comes in, where you have something out of order. What is out of order and what is Paul saying? Please don't do this. This is unhealthy. This is what is a shame in the body of Christ. It's a pertinacious, inquisitive, domineering, dogmatical kind of speaking, which in 1 Corinthians would appear to be the idea that Paul is describing as shameful for a woman to do while in the church. Excuse me, but could you not do that? That is not helping. It is bringing discord and disharmony amongst us. That isn't your place to be you know, sticking in your opinion on that matter. The big meaning at the front door. Now, here's just a quick illustration to sort of show you how the honor issues between men and women can work. And I've used this illustration at Ellerslie many times, but a big mini comes to the front door and goes, hey, I want to come in and hurt someone. Kink, 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 kink. Now, it'd be ridiculous for me just to open up the door and say, come on in, big meanie, do what you want. Now, that's a silent husband, very inappropriate. But now we're talking about a husband as a husband ought to be. A husband as a husband ought to be doesn't shove his wife in front of him and say, could you deal with that? I'll take the kids into the basement and hide. There's something by its very nature that is wrong about that. But I could also appeal to your very nature of understanding the role of men and women to say, if the wife were to shove the husband out of the way and say, I will deal with this, you're not strong enough, you're a coward. By its very nature, she has undermined the very fabric of the home. You follow me? This is what Paul is referring to. No, I prohibit a woman from shoving a man out of the way and doing what he is assigned to do. Now, follow me on this. Does that mean a woman is not meant to stand up and be bold and strong against the big meaning? It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with an order of things in a situation where the men are present. So now imagine that daddy is gone and the big meaning comes to the door and it's mama and the kids. What does mama do? She boldly comes to that door and says, get out of here. You see, she needs to endridzomai, which is the Greek word for say, be the man. In other words, depending on the circumstances, the way you express it is all out of love. In certain situations, a woman to honor her husband will allow her husband to take a step forward. In other situations, to love her kids, she will step forward and risk her life. Both are love. But in each situation, there's a proper order to it. It'd be inappropriate for my wife to shove little, you know, Lily to the door, who's three, to take on the big meanie, to preserve her own skin. That would be just as wrong. And I would say, doesn't the very nature of things show you that that is inappropriate? Or for Lily to shove mama out of the way and say, I will deal with this discipline. You see, the very nature of things is showing us that there's a proper order. However, we in the church do not want to hear it. We do not want to understand it because it offends our political correctness. And I'm going to say, I don't care about our political correctness. I care about kingdom correctness. We order our conversation aright and we will see the salvation of God. 
I want the cloud of glory in here. And to get that, I want to make sure we're lighting the candlesticks right, stick the showbread in its proper place, and keep the doors wide open to the Spirit of God. I want to make sure that we are in our position with ear inclined unto our master. There's a time for a man to speak, to move, to respond. And if a woman were to usurp his position in such a situation, it would be both shameful and denigrating to the man. So is a woman never supposed to speak in the church? Now, hopefully you've begun to put some pieces together in this to to understand where I'm coming from. But listen to this. This is the same book that it says, I prohibit a woman to speak. It says in 1 Corinthians 11 now, but every woman that prays or prophesies, now this is in the context of the church. Remember, this is still order in the church. With her head uncovered, dishonors her head, for that is even all alone as if she were shaven. A woman is praying and prophesying? Whoa, that sounds like speaking to me. I don't know, if you were praying or prophesying in the church, would that be out loud, or is this like just sort of a quiet thing? You see, obviously, God is not contradicting himself in Scripture. So the form of speaking seems to be a very specific type of form, which is usurping and not being in obedience. It's not inclining its ear, it's jutting in opinion. It's pushing men out of the way and attempting to control something that it should actually submit to and say, I am going to be silent in this situation and lend my ear to be a helper instead of a hinderer. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God. This is speaking in Joel 2 of the coming Pentecost. Peter, when preaching at Pentecost in Jerusalem, refers to Joel 2. So Joel 2 is clearly articulating something that is coming in the New Testament. It says, and you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. It doesn't say your sons shall prophesy. It says your sons, and then it gets this really awkward. It says, and your daughters. They're not even allowed to speak. How in the world are they going to do that then? Well, it's the spirit of God that's doing it. Are we supposed to prohibit that? Follow me? This is, this is why it can be a little awkward. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, this is Pentecost, lifted up his voice and said unto them, You men of Judea and all that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words, for these are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Talking women? I mean, that's just so absurd. Can women speak? Justin Martyr, who lived till about A.D. 150. So we're talking the early church. This is one of the fathers uh, of Christianity. Says in his dialogue with Trifo the Jew that both men and women, I made women big here. It's not that Justin Martyr was making a big deal about it. I'm just quoting something. That men and women were seen among them who had the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit of God according as the prophet Joel had foretold but which he endeavored to convince the Jews that the latter days were come. So he's actually referring in 150 AD to that same prophecy of Joel and mentioning that men and women were exhibiting this. Dodwell, in his dissertations on Irenaeus, says the gift of the spirit of prophecy was given to others besides the apostles, and that not only in the first and second, but in the third century, even to the time of Constantine, all sorts of, and ranks of men had these gifts, yes, and women too. Eusebius speaks to Potomania, Amias, a prophetess in Philadelphia, 
and others who were equally distinguished for their love and zeal in the cause of Christ. Now, I'm probably right there with you about the term of like trying to raise up prophetesses in here. Something about it that just makes me squirm. However, I'm just referring to something to show you that actually the historic church was not ashamed of this, even though it had the writings of Paul. In other words, it was not the diminishment of the writings of Paul, but for whatever reason, the context in which we take them, there still must be decency and order. And what Paul says all throughout is actually the word of God, and we submit to it. However, as a woman, I want you to recognize a couple things. You have been commissioned to go and tell of the gospel, and you are not prohibited from going and telling about the gospel. However, in the church and in amongst the church and in your homes, there is a proper position to actually know how to walk out so that you can reveal unto the heavenlies the manifold wisdom of God in and through how you relate to your husbands, how you relate to your children, how you relate to the body of Christ, how you relate to the leadership in the church. That's all part of the revelation of the kingdom of heaven. What is the position of the woman? For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized, that means to be put in to Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. So what we have is a picture in Paul, the very one who wrote all of this stuff, is actually always going out of his way to make it very clear. You see, there isn't a distinguishing factor of rank and value in Christ Jesus. God doesn't weigh things on that scale when it comes to in Christ. The salvation, the gift of grace, the gift of the Holy Spirit is not given according to if you're slave or you're free. It's not given if you're male or female. It's not given if you're Jew or Gentile. We all have access to the same benefit, the same liberty, the same freedom in Christ. Yet how we appropriate that in our life as men and women still matters. And that's the challenge that we need to realize. So what is the position of the woman? She is in Christ. That is the key position of a woman. And that's how she reasons, that's how she thinks. In Christ, she is free from the bondage of legal oppressions and the long-held guilt stranglehold that rests upon her. Remember Eve? Uh huh. And every woman still has to feel the guilt of Eve's mistake, lest she bring the same fruit unto her husband. And so as a result, there's freedom from that long-held weight that so, qu- that so easily rests upon as if you are Eve and you're responsible for it. She has been redeemed from the curse and she is no more a slave to cultural patterns of times past. Should she throw off her femininity? And this is the tendency. In other words, well, there's no male or female in Christ, therefore I'm not even going to consider myself a woman. So should we throw off our femininity? In 1 Corinthians 11, you have women that said, hey, I'm free in Christ. And the symbol of submission was a head covering. And the only women that didn't wear a head covering were prostitutes. So these women in Corinth were saying, look, it's neither male nor female. I am, I'm free in Christ Jesus. Therefore, I want to use my liberty to not have to wear this crazy thing anymore. And as a result, Paul said, look, we've got a problem here, ladies. Because, yes, whereas it's true you have liberty in Christ, you're not leveraging your liberty lovingly. Because it makes you look to the culture around that you are unsubmitted to your husband. 
you're showing disrespect. In that culture, it was a show of disrespect and dishonor to her husband. Is that the message you're trying to share? Are you wanting to share that message? Or if you're wanting to reveal the kingdom of heaven on earth, what would you do? You'd stick that on to show deference and honor. The key in our culture, because if we were going to talk about head coverings, if you look at Leslie's head, you'd see that there isn't a head covering on it, which would give away maybe a conclusion that I have come to. But that's because I've spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians understanding what Paul is saying. And again, this is my position. However, if you wear a head covering or, you know, as a husband, you, you ask your wife to wear a head covering, then that becomes the key issue. For instance, how we honor the head is the critical juncture. We all want to honor Jesus Christ. And so as a result, we show a certain honor and to our authority in this realm. The headship that God has put over us, we show honor to it unless it asks us to violate our primary commitment to our head in heaven. If it asks us to sully our conscience to just be right with men on this earth, we cannot do it. But in submission... To Christ, we can submit and show honor, even if that means something awkward like sticking a cloth on our head. It's honor, it's respect, and it's love, and this is precisely what Paul is appealing to. Should she throw off her femininity? And Paul says, judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Let me ask you a question. Is it proper for you to pray to the Father uncovered in Jesus? Is it proper? Is it proper not to have a head? How do you have access to the Father in Christ? This is a symbol. This is a picture. It's a great mystery, but the mystery is Christ and his church. You want to pray, pray with your head covered. As men, our covering is in Christ. That's our covering. And women pray covered, in a sense, by their husband. Not just by a piece of cloth. The cloth was a symbol of submission externally, but external symbols aren't what save. It is an internal consecration. Any more than baptism in water is what truly baptizes you. It's baptism by faith in Christ. It's faith that gains us the shed blood of Jesus, not water. An external symbol has value to the degree that it reveals that which is internal and hidden and unseen, but not beyond that. Our job is to love and to love well and to reveal the kingdom of heaven at every turn. She is still yet a woman. Though you are free in Christ Jesus and though in Christ there is no male and female, I'm still a man. And I'm still responsible to be a man in my home. I'm still responsible to be a man in my marriage. I'm still responsible to be a man unto my kids. I'm still responsible to be a man in this church. I'm still responsible to be a man in this community. I'm still responsible to be a man in this nation and in this world. I'm still a man, though I'm in Christ. I still have a job to do in this earthly realm, though in Christ I'm not distinguished based on that. It's wonderful because I'm not, there's no prejudice in the kingdom of heaven towards a white, middle-class American male. It is actually rather uh, freeing to realize that because in America, there is. It actually, you're hindered at every turn. But in the kingdom of heaven, there isn't. And so as a result, every single one of us, no matter race, no matter gender, no matter slave or free, have access unto the same throne of grace without hindrance and impediment in what we receive. We all have access to be the temple of the living God and to be filled with the life of God. She is still yet a woman and therefore a vivid picture of the redemptive picture of the feminine position. 
Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Is the church subject unto Christ? So that's the question for us. Because depending on who you are, you're appropriating this message in a unique way. I don't know the way you're appropriating it. I can only hazard guesses. However, I need to appropriate it as the woman, as the bride of Christ, as the church. This is the great mystery. It's Christ and his church, and I'm not Christ. I'm the bride? That's right. I'm the bride. I'm the one who's being asked to silence, incline my ear, and to come away with him, and to heed him, to submit to him in all things. His word rules over my life. And so I'm learning to have an ear for my master. Are we behaving as the bride, or are we on our own feministic rant? As a church, are we exerting our independence of God and saying, God, yeah, thanks for your shed blood, but now this is my life now? Or do we recognize that the only way for Christianity to work is for us to return unto our master and let him pierce our ear and say, I will follow you wherever you go, and I will be silent when you're speaking? You see, there's, there's a silence that is needed amongst all of us. We do not act like our opinion is greater than God's. We learn to submit to God's word. It's just how Christianity works. Silent that the groom may speak. So I read this scripture earlier, but just as a reminder, Jesus isn't asking us to do something that he didn't already model. He did it. He was silent that the Father would speak. You know what the Holy Spirit is silent that Jesus would speak? The Holy Spirit only speaks what Jesus is speaking, or what we could say the Word of God is speaking. He's in perfect agreement with the Word of God. He's in submission. Jesus is in submission to the Father. Well, we're in submission to the Word of God, Jesus, and to the Holy Spirit. And whatever they ask, we say, yes, sir. Yes, Lord. I have an ear for my Master. Are we willing to allow this tongue to be stilled, to submit to one that is our head? Believe thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the works. Father, I ask that you would work in a beautiful way to bring us unto that doorpost and to pierce our ear. Lord, many of us have a fight within us. It's an individualistic yearning to express ourselves, to be heard to have people think that our opinion matters. And Lord Jesus, I just want to freshly, as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, yield that up to you. I want to surrender that right to you to be heard, to be understood, to be deemed intelligent and wise. And that we would allow you to be the one that is understood to be all knowledge and all wisdom. You are our head and we as the church May we understand the position of the woman and truly through it, may the cloud of glory move in and fill this temple that we keep. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.